Lasso. There were two written questions uh, yesterday afternoon that, of course, didn't get answered. So I'll try to give very, very concise responses to each of them because they're both relevant to the practice we're going into right now. The first of these pertains to the, the elements, the four elements or five elements, as we directly attend to them in the body, like we did yesterday, in the tactily sensed, let there be just the tactily sensed. So what are these elements? The, the word element is one I'll stick with, it's an old translation. Um, like many translations that are accurate, it can also be misleading. The Tibetan word for element, like earth, water, fire, and so forth, is jungwa, and jungwa means to emerge. Jungwa means to emerge. So experientially, the earth element is something that emerges, and in terms of our own first-person experience, it emerges, that is the actual sensation, the experience of the earth element, what appears to us emerges from substrate. What else would it appear from? It's an appearance. And it, the earth element is that appearance, that manifestation, that just that, of firmness and solidity. So as we're simply attending to the body, where you, for example, where your body is in contact with your cushion, you feel something firm. That's earth element. The earth element is not something independent of experience. And this is a fundamental point of departure between the Buddhist inquiry in the nature of reality and that of the founders of modern science, because they, were, of course, were seeking to understand reality as it exists absolutely out there from God's perspective, from an absolute perspective. And Buddhism not even positing the existence of a God absolutely out there who created everything then was never interested in an absolutely objective perspective on reality independent of human experience. So earth element, the actual emergence of solidity and firmness, water, a fluid, fluidity and moisture, of fire, of heat, that is the whole gradient from cold to hot, of air, motility, that which is light and moving. So they are merging, emerging, emerging. And then, of course, there's that out of which they are merging, and that is space. And space also is an emergence out of a deeper dimension of space. Okay? Now, the elements in the body, and this runs through Tibetan medicine as well as all of Buddhism as a whole, the elements of the body are exactly the same elements that arise in the environment around us, and Tibetan medicine plays very heavily <coughs> on this profound interdependence this interdependence of the external elements in the internal elements, seeking to balance the elements in the body in relationship to the environment. So that's a central theme of healing, of medicine, of both of diagnosis as well as treatment in traditional Tibetan medicine. I'm trying to be really concise here because these are loaded questions. I haven't even got to the second one. These elements, again, are experiential elements, stand in stark contrast to, for example, the periodic table of elements starting with hydrogen and going to helium and so forth that are assumed to exist from a perspective of metaphysical realism to exist absolutely out there, independent of experience, independent of measurement, independent of concepts. From the perspective of metaphysical realism, they are already out there and the scientists were clever enough to discover them and to recognize what their intrinsic, absolutely objective qualities are. That worked pretty well until quantum mechanics came along and blew the lid off of it. So that's over a hundred elements in the periodic table. For in terms of experiential elements, five five seems to be quite sufficient. In Vaibhashika and Satrantika, the more basic 
schools of philosophical interpretation of the Buddhist teachings, they too are interested in the world of experience. But looking at the consensuality of experience, looking at causation that occurs whether or not we're looking, these two early schools, by Bhashika and Satrantika, assume that these elements exist independently of experience. That's not what they're really interested in, but there must be something very similar to what we experience out there independently in the objective world that holds everything together. So, in other words, they were metaphysical realists. But if one really scrutinizes, probes this, philosophically and contemplatively, one finds the bottom falls out of that, and that's what the Chittimatrans found is that when you're really looking for these elements that absolutely exist out there independent of experience, you never find them. Nobody ever experiences them. And a synonym of that which exists is that which is knowable. And if something is not knowable even in principle, then don't attribute existence to it. And I think that could be a Chittamatra motto. It's also exactly what Werner Heisenberg said. If some, Van Heisenberg, one of the great pioneers of quantum mechanics, said, if something is unknowable in principle, do not attribute existence to it. As we saw yesterday, or at least I saw, I'm not quite sure how many other people saw, or maybe think I'm deluded, that matter as it exists out there by its own attributes, as a ding an sich, to use Kant's terminology, independent of measurement, by its own intrinsic existence, absolute matter from an absolute perspective, is unknowable. Therefore, from the Chittimatra perspective, no reason to attribute existence to it. There's only one absolute remaining, and that is the mind. And the Majjhimika comes in with the scythe of Majjhimika reasoning and Vipassana meditation and cuts down the last standing tree of absolute existence, the mind, showing that it too has no inherent nature. Nothing subjectively, nothing objectively, all subjective and objective phenomena arising by a process of codependent origination. In other words, there is no absolute perspective. There is no absolute perspective on any single unified, absolutely existent objective reality. Stephen Hawking, 30 years ago, suggested maybe there was a God and that there must be some grand unification of general relativity and quantum mechanics. Because if there is an absolute perspective, on one universe, then it all must fit together. And there should be a theory that puts it all together in one theory corresponding to a pre-existing, absolutely real, objective universe. Now he's give up, given up on that idea. And he's come back and said, you know, experience is primary. And all of our theories, all of our physical theories, are all relative to experience, systems of measurement. And if that's the case, now in his latest book, he throws out the hypothesis of God for lack of evidence, and therefore, he also throws out the notion that there will ever be a grand unified theory because there's no, there's no grand unified, single, absolute, correct perspective on reality. It's all relative to different modes of experience. That's the Madhyamaka view. So it took physics a while to get there, but good, better late than never. The second question was grasping. In the scene, let there be just the scene, and the herd just the herd. And the question here was, but I thought this meant basically don't be judgmental. And that is, when you're seeing somebody, don't see something or some, some event and so forth, don't slap your judgments, I like, I loathe. Don't slap all your, crap, your conceptual crap on it. Just, yeah, it's a person. It's, it's, a, it's a red dress, it's a red shawl, it's whatever. Just keep it clean, keep it neat, but don't slap your conceptual projections on them. 
basically pretty much being non-judgmental. Well, that's good advice. I mean, who wants to be judgmental? Everybody wants to have good judgment, but nobody wants to be good ju judgmental. So we like the noun, but we can't stand the adjective. <laughs> but bear in mind the context. This was a contemplative who passionately sought out the Buddha, almost harangued him for teachings. Just he was like relentless, he was like a terrier. He just he, he wanted the teachings now, he was really insistent, Bahia, really insistent. And then the Buddha saw, he waited, waited, and then, and then he saw the time was right, like throwing a dart. And he threw a single dart of about two paragraphs of teachings to Bahia. And after the two paragraphs was over, Bahia was an arhat. Okay? And the teachings were, in the scene, let there be just the scene, in the herd, just the herd. So do you think he got to arhatship by being non-judgmental? being a really nice guy. I think we have to go a bit deeper than that. Now bear in mind, it's like those levels of magnification. But this man had come to achieve liberation, and the Buddha was ready to liberate him. So it was in he, as he was receiving this, the Buddha just put him down a, like a, bob, a bobs, bobsled shoot. Phew, like that. So when, in your, in, when, you, when you're in the bobsled, sh bobsled shoot, you know, the, isn't it called a shoot? Where the one slit goes? That's not a time to do your taxes, to do really anything else. I mean, you're in the bobsled, you're just, you're just not doing anything else, right? You're not really dealing with any other conventional reality. You're basically, this is all you're doing. You're in the bobsled shoot. And that's what this man wanted to do. He didn't want to kind of maneuver himself more skillfully around samsara. He wanted out, and the Buddha gave him about two paragraphs. Okay, here's out. Go into the shoot. See at the bottom. And so he's not trying to make sense of, how do you say, how to navigate around conventional reality. He's willing to just go right into a fast track, the fast lane on the German Autobahn, from here to Nirvana in about maybe five minutes. And so the notion of non-grasping here has to be pretty radical. So what does this entail? In the scene, let it be just the scene. This means you are just pulling back, pulling the plug on all conceptual imputation, all labeling, all concepts, everything. You're pulling, you're, you want to get, I mean, you're going to achieve nirvana in five minutes. So this means you're going to do something absolutely radical, which during that five minutes, if this entails that you can't order a cup of tea and pay the bill, you can live with that, right? Because you're just now, you're in the Bob said Schlute. Bob shit. Sled, shoot. <laughs> and so, in the scene, just the scene, that is eyes wide open, and you radically release all conceptual designation whatsoever. What happens? It goes blank. And I'll give you a little sneak preview from Genlam Rimbo when, he, when I was in retreat with him for a year in 1988. He'd been meditating for 25 years or so, a lot of it on, on emptiness. And he said, you know, when you really stop conceptual, conceptually designating altogether, the whole world disappears. For you, obviously, not for everybody else. But if, and he was really, he had really studied, he he'd had teachings in Madhyamaka philosophy from the masters. I mean, some extraordinary, extraordinary teachers. Genyima, for example. Genyima, extraordinary. 
and others as well. So he was well-trained academically and had been spent like 25 years meditating in solitude, total, full-out, professional contemplative. And he said, when you pull the plug on conceptual designation entirely, since all phenomena arise, independent upon conceptual designation, if you pull the plug on conceptual designation, all phenomena don't arise. Not for you. Not when you're in the center of your mandala. The mandala dissolves. And so imagine that this is what Bahia did, when the Buddha is just locking onto him and just beaming like a mind transmission of nirvana. And he says, in the scene, let it be just the scene. And Bahia goes, blank screen, eyes open, blank screen. In the herd, and I think he must have listened to the whole discourse, otherwise he would have bailed out before the Buddha was finished. Oh, wait, don't, don't, slow. This is a front-loaded meditation here. You know, this is not a guided meditation. This is a front-loaded. Listen to the whole thing and then, and then achieve nirvana. So, but imagine you're doing it as a guided meditation and you completely withdraw, and this totally, absolutely withdraw, all conceptual designation, all objectification, all making objects out of that which appears in the visual field so that the objects have the attributes, they have the quality of green, they have the quality of being triangular, and so forth. Imagine you pull back conceptual designation and the screen goes blank. In the herd, let there be just the herd, and you pull back all designations, and hearing goes silent. In the tactily sensed, let there be just the tactily sensed, and you're disembodied. As if you've just fallen asleep, all senses having been retracted into the mental domain. In the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived, withdrawing all conceptual designation. All the javana, all the activities of the mind, melt into the substrate. Your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness. But you're still attending to this domain of the mind, which is called in Pali, Dhammadhatu. All the phenomena, all the, all the activities, all the events, all the appearances in that domain, as you're attending to the space of the mind and its contents, all the contents dissolve as you simply release all conceptual designation, even the subtlest form of grasping. They all dissolve. And you're left with a blank screen, the relative Dhammadhatu. And you, re you realize the emptiness of that, that even the Dhammadhatu, even the substrate, is empty of inherent nature. Realizing that, you withdraw the conceptual designation of relative Dhammadhatu. The substrate dissolves. And you realize emptiness. You become an arhat. In five minutes. If you're Bahia. And your teacher is a Buddha. With you over there, and me over here, things could take a bit longer. <laughs> okay, let's practice however long it takes. The, the clock starts ticking when you start practicing.
with a sense of ease, looseness, relaxation. Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration effortlessly, without restraint, in its natural rhythm. For a little while, calm and subdue the obsessive compulsive flow of thinking by attending to the sensations of the breath, relaxing with every outbreath, releasing all thoughts as soon as they arise.
then let your eyes be at least partially open. And bring the full force of discerning mindfulness, clear and alert, to the elliptical field of vision. And in the scene, let it be just the scene. Close the eyes and redirect your mindfulness to the auditory field. And observe how these sounds themselves are empty of labels empty of concepts. Empty of having anything, empty of being possessed by anything. Now take us the object of mindfulness, the space of the body, and the emergences of earth, water, fire, and air within this space. Are these events any different?
their nakedness do they appear to be attributes of something else or possessed by something or someone else. Let your eyes be at least partially open, but this time vacant. Relax, soft, natural. But the eyes vacant, and the full force of mindfulness directed to the space of the mind and its contents. And in this session, let the focus, like on a camera lens, be on the players that appear on the stage of the mind, the distinct events of thoughts, images. And as you settle more deeply into the practice, the more subjective events, desires, emotions. Observe their nature. Without distraction without grasping of any kind, to the best of your ability, withdraw all conceptual designations and simply observe their nature and let them be. And let's practice now in silence.
castle. For those of you who have studied and do remember the outer and the inner prerequisites for actually achieving shamatha, you recall that one of the inner prerequisites, rather a tall order, is to completely release, abandon, get rid of obsessive thinking involving desires and so forth. All the time. Doesn't mean don't think, it just means totally get rid of all obsessive thinking involving desires, hopes and fears and all of that business. And so there's your marching orders in between sessions to see if you can just release all obsessive thinking. But should obsessive thinking arise, see if you can release the tendency of being compulsively grasped by it and carried away by it. And should you be compulsively grasped by the thought and carried away, see if you can release the tendency to delusionally regard whatever you're thinking as the whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In other words, there are three stages of OCDD. Try to nip it in the bud. Best no obsessive. If it's obsessive, don't be compulsive. If it's compulsive, well, at least give it a good shot of not being delusional. Enjoy your day. <laughs>